You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. In this podcast, we cover everything from churches and church planting efforts, mission and missions organization evangelism, and unreached people groups, emerging movements and initiatives, justice, current events related to faith, and the persecuted church, to author interviews, and more. Let's get to it. Hello, and welcome back to Our Urban Voices. I'm your host, Dr. Alphonse Javed. Today, I'm joined once again by Seth Bushell from the Exponent Group. Last week, we talked about the diaspora and urban churches and their unique position in spreading the gospel globally. Our topic today focuses on why Muslim evangelism requires its own skills and ethnography. Uh, Seth has been uh, planting uh, churches among diaspora populations in New York City as I mentioned in my previous episode since 2014, and also serves as the director of equipping for the Exponent Group. Through this role, Seth works to train urban churches and nonprofits in evangelism and discipleship skills. Thank you again, uh, Seth. Thank you so much for coming back and uh, uh, giving us some uh, more understanding into this subject. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here again. So listeners last week would have already heard this, but before we get started, please tell us very briefly about your family for any new listeners. I believe family is so important because it helps us to humanize us us as persons. Yeah. Uh, So I I grew up in a ministry family. My my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather were all preachers. And so, yeah, I got, got the opportunity to watch a lot of ministry growing up and also something that I didn't realize was a unique experience until I moved to New York, but ministry families are often fairly transient. And so we moved around a good deal as kids and those, uh, those early life experiences of moving to a new city and not knowing anybody and not knowing the local culture. I didn't realize in childhood the way that was preparing me for the mission field, but I, I think in the long run, it really did. So let's start off. uh, um, So I'm a pastor kid, just so you know. Um, And uh, uh, same thing, desire to serve was not there first. Um, Well, I served with my dad and uh, but never wanted to be a pastor. So took the missionary route, but then also eventually God brought me back to the to the um, to the church where uh, God put the desire in my heart to be a pastor of a church. Right. So for the last uh, uh, 13 years or so, um, I'm serving as a pastor. Um, let's start off with a very basic question. Why should mm-hmm. more Christians, especially in cities with high Muslim immigrant populations, by learning more about reaching out to their Muslim neighbors? Why should more Christians be involved in that? Why should they be learning more about reaching out to other um, Muslim communities? Sure. Uh, well, this may be overly simplistic, but I think, you know, in in the Gospels, Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus also gives his disciples the Great Commission, right? Go out to all nations and make disciples. 
And those two things are now the same reality for most of our churches, even churches in, in smaller cities, that their neighbors now usually are international migrants. And so obeying the Great Commission and loving our neighbor end up being in the same relationships. Uh, we no longer live in a setting where, you know, if, if you're outside of a major city, it's largely homogenous. It's largely not. And even small towns like, you know, I, I grew up in Amarillo, Texas, which is not a large city by, by any metric. My mom was a high school science teacher. She had 18 different languages spoken in a sixth grade classroom. And, and so cross-cultural skills and an appreciation for being able to work across a religious uh, gap are now essential skills for anyone doing ministry. As I think about this, um, how, how, how can Christians start making friends with Muslims in their cities? And right mm -hmm. from the start, what expectations for their friendships should Christians set aside? Um, in terms of how, I would say, uh, I think it starts by, by trying to form relationships where you already live, work, and play. Um, for most Christians, if they can't have a spiritual conversation with anyone, throwing themselves into an entirely cross-cultural setting is not necessarily the best environment to develop those skills. And so I would say start with the places you already go. And I would, I would be willing to bet that at the restaurants that the average Christian regularly goes to in their life, their public library, their local park, there's going to be people from a different cultural and religious background. And mm -hmm. I think that's probably how and where I would encourage them to start. In terms of the expectations, I think one of the things that I've seen with a lot of new missionaries is they, they study Islam before coming to the field. Right. And then they engage Muslims kind of as a, as a type right. rather than as an individual. And so they come in with a lot of pre-prepared points about the Quran or about Islamic theology or about Islamic culture. And they assume that that applies to this relationship, but they haven't actually confirmed that. And when we do that, I think we come in with a lot of assumptions about what our Muslim friends and neighbors might think or have experienced. And it would be better to set that aside and actually just ask them, ask them about their beliefs, ask them about their experiences, ask right. them what's important to them about their faith rather than assume it. I think one of the reasons that's particularly applicable with Muslim populations uh, is because a lot of the Muslim populations that we've worked in, you know, Muslims are a very diverse faith globally. There's more than sure. a billion of them. There's dozens sure. of languages and cultures involved. They're not a monolith. Right. And most of the Muslim populations that I've worked with aren't Arabic speaking. And for that reason, most of the Muslim friends I have haven't ever read the Quran. And so I remember as an early missionary coming in, I had read the Quran, I think two times and was really prepared to kind of talk about it and, and compare it with scripture. And that just wasn't a conversation my Muslim neighbors were available for or interested in. And it took a while to learn that that was because when I tried to initiate that conversation, I was often causing them to lose face because I was trying to force them to talk about something they haven't studied and I have. And that's not caring. Yeah, that, that's like, um, you know, my, I was uh, trained here in the United States in theology. And even before here, I was in Greece. So my brother, while I was here, he was back. He was going into a, a Pakistani seminary planted there by a foreign uh, country, I forgot which one, uh, Bible seminary. But when I went back after like, what, 16 years, 
So the very thing that guy is doing, he's just trying to talk to me, my own brother. He's just tricking me, kind of like showing off his knowledge, right? Or I don't know uh, whether it was a uh, real effort, but he was bringing up the points that he wants me to talk about to just uh, um, show me that how much he knows and his knowledge is superior Therefore, his uh, thoughts are superior. So I think that is also true when a person, and I agree with you, when a person comes with the pre-notion that, oh, I know uh, a Muslim friend, I know oh, what is the, what is the, you know, let's say uh, original sin idea uh, in Islam. Mm -hmm. You don't know, but right. let me tell you how important. That person doesn't care. Or let right. me tell you where you got the idea of uh, Allah because uh, mm -hmm. that you do not know, but it, nobody's telling you, but I know, and nobody cares. They are right. more, uh, when you meet with them, they are more interested in their food, <laughs> right? They're more right. interested in uh, uh, what they're going to wear, how they are being treated uh, and all that. Um, so yeah. I agree with you that uh, probably the missionary force, therefore, Heart for Muslims Conference is one of those places where we discuss things like this to help our mm -hmm. missionaries as well. What are the most common mistakes you have seen that Christians and evangelists reaching out mm -hmm. to Muslims make? Um, I think the, the biggest one is definitely around assumptions, like the last question. And, and some of those are... Uh, misunderstandings of Islam and, and assumptions about kind of the, the Muslim uh, experience, which again, I don't think we can assume it, it's incredibly diverse. So for example, uh, exactly like you're saying, I've, I've watched, especially short-term missionary groups are guilty of this. The short-term teams that come to New York for a week and, and try to impact a neighborhood, they'll come. And it's exactly like you said, they, they often go to my Muslim friends and neighbors and try to explain to them what they believe and why it's wrong. And not only are those assumptions probably not accurate, but they haven't thought through the honor shame dynamics of what they're doing. That even if you were to convince someone intellectually, That's if you right. cause them to lose face publicly, you yeah. should not expect to have a good relationship with that person mm -hmm. at the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the other things, and this again, highly generalized, but, but often true in a Muslim community in my experience, uh, too many evangelists go in and try to be teachers. And when they do that, they don't often understand the cultural expectations about how somebody interacts with a teacher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so an easy example of that, one of my good friends uh, in the Bengali community, when, when we were first in New York, you know, he owned a couple of restaurants and he was one of those guys that owned two or three apartments. And so sponsored a lot of green cards and visas, very respected person in this community. Uh, I remember asking him one time, we were having tea in his restaurant. And I said, uh, Muhammad, I said, your kids are in public school, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, how, how do you make sure that they learn what you want them to learn about your culture and about your faith when they go to New York public schools? And he said, oh, that's very easy. He said, every day when they come home from school, I ask them, what did your teacher tell you today? And they tell me everything they learned. And then anything I disagree with, I say, oh, your teacher was very wise to say that. But let me add something. And then I tell them the right thing so that they know what's right, but can still go honor their teacher. And that, that really turned a light bulb on that conversation for our new missionary team at the time. This was years ago. 
because we realized that every time we went out to do evangelism, this is a community that, that we were tutoring people in English and we were helping them with citizenship testing and we're helping them apply for jobs and find apartments. So we're, we're serving a function that they're gonna honor and, and they wanna respect us because we're being good neighbors. So when we tell the gospel, because we've set ourselves up as a teacher, the way they respond to us is how they respond to teachers. Oh, that's very wise. Thank you for saying that. That's very good. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that's not a sign of religious uh -huh. receptivity. Uh -huh. That's just social niceties. Yeah. That's them being polite. And we didn't understand that. Yeah. And so to come in from a lower place, what we started doing was to what we called beatitude evangelism or honoring uh -huh. evangelism. Uh -huh. We come in and we say, you know, you're, you're clearly a very spiritual person. And I uh -huh. respect that. Uh -huh. Uh, and one of the things that, that Isa says in the Injil, which that's just Jesus and gospel in Arabic, but you know, one of the things that Jesus says in, in the Injil is that uh, only the person with the right kind of ears can understand and interpret the Injil for someone else. Hmm. Could I tell you a story and, and you tell me what you think it means? Because I, I think that you might have a different perspective on it than I would. And I, I'd love to learn from your perspective. And they say, oh yeah, definitely tell me your story. And, and we could tell any parable or any teaching of Jesus. And we were getting a much more direct kind of engagement and feedback because we weren't setting ourselves up as the teacher. We were setting ourselves up as the learner and it honored our neighbors in a way that they wanted to talk to us about and wanted to share with us because we were showing them a level of respect as a spiritual person that they were eager to, to be engaged. I also, first of all, we gotta get, uh, we gotta get uh, this, um, um, you know, workshop. Uh, we gotta do some sort of workshop during Heart for Muslims conference. So we gotta do this one specially because the difference you bringing up is uh, such a delicate difference uh, because the way people are raised. Earlier you were talking about in the previous episode, you talked about uh, diaspora churches and how they interact, how you're equipping them. But I think it's also true with our uh, churches that been around uh, forever, right? Because the culture here in the United States is you go to church and you, what do you do? Go to the church, you worship and you have your songs, your prayer, and then you listen to sermon. Then what yeah. do you do? After that, most of this pandemic, I have heard from other pastors and missionaries that during pandemic, almost even the head of denominations uh, acknowledge that during pandemic, the biggest challenge was how to remain in contact. So, so larger churches actually changed their approach to discipleship because people were going to church to just get that more teaching, more teaching, more teaching, and there was no application. Yeah. And I think yeah. what what been going on for so long is when uh, you send that missionary force in the mission field, whether that is a short-term missions or long-term missions, they are going there with the same mindset. Oh, all we need to do is teach. All we need yeah. to do is argue. All we need to do is to hold on to our view. And that's as long we hold the truth. That's what it matters. But I think what you bringing is the other side of the story. While you could constantly preach, 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 and hold on to the truth. But if the you you were looking at a wall, you're doing all of that to a wall, it's not going to do anything. It's not going to make any way. It's a wall. And I unless right. you take the uh, lower place where you become like them, I think the whole idea of miss, in missiology, we got to talk about this being the embodiment of this gospel and uh, yeah. being the listeners and uh, experiencing that what we are taught 
and yeah. experiencing and allowing other people to experience that too because we are disciple we are making difference because yeah. the way we are you know implementing that or applying that scriptures but also experiencing from their angle and i think that's where i hear you very clearly when you said take the posture of a learner and mm-hmm. sit down and talk to them and ask them what they think because then you have opportunity to talk there is no argument there is a yeah. equality and all of that is yeah. especially uh, I, I tell you up front if uh, you know early uh, in in the early days like if you have, would have spoken to me um uh, 17 years ago 18 years ago and you were a white man and you sit down with your credentials i will be like yes yes even if i am coming from a rich family with the with rich in sense of culture and education and re- mm-hmm. religious uh, uh, um, you know awareness still i will be like sitting there because you are america you're an american white person and uh, in those countries that's what we were taught that as long you have uh, uh, you know americans are still my mom believes that american that americans are close to god therefore they are blessed you see she mm-hmm. lives in pakistan she's a pakistani so that's how her mind works because missionary yeah. saw that so all of this is part of the same conversation i think when it comes to um, training missionaries and sending them in the mission field whether short term or long short term we got to pull back and allow them to know that our place is not to be domineering in the mm-hmm. conversation, rather, right. which is a pastoral <laughs> pastoral way of doing ministry anyways. We are there to exalt Christ, but also not condemn uh, the cultural understanding of yeah. that religious person. Respecting them is the first thing. When you you said, you know, really, really, that's what it comes down to, shame and honor culture. Um, and understanding those boundaries and even age matters in that, right? Yeah. So if the older person is talking to a younger man, of course, that person is going to sit and listen because that's what, what the person is taught. It's not in America like, oh, you got to give your opinion. No, no, no. Uh, those, uh, most cultures outside of the United States are, or the Western culture, outside of Western culture are, are taught not to speak mm-hmm. when an older person is speaking, right? You don't, you, you, we, you are not taught to be opinionated. So you're going to sit there and allow the person to speak, even though you may have a better idea and better rationale. Uh, but at the same time, I've heard brothers talking to me, oh man, I spoke and the guy had no answer whatsoever. And I was like, yeah, of course he didn't have any answer because he was <laughs> respecting you crying. and you were not. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I think I see a lot of that and I, you know, Protestants, especially American Protestants, uh, I think one, um, we're, we're pretty ahistorical as a movement, meaning a lot of Protestants don't care to study church history or learn from the church's mistakes from the past. You know, we're, we're always reforming, we're always restoring, whatever. And, and so there's a lot of lessons that if we pay attention to the history of missions, uh, there are mistakes we don't have to repeat. And one of those is the the way in which the the church has largely been an arm of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our evangelism is shaped by uh, American and European expectations around how someone is educated and formed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that isn't necessarily what we see modeled in the gospels. And it isn't necessary cross-culturally. 
But Americans, and I'll include myself in this, it, you know, it, it's constant as a cross-cultural missionary that you just get convicted of the ways in which you've turned your own culture into an idol uh, and, and worshiped your own, your own culture and your own nation in a way that really is antithetical to the gospel and, and has to be set aside if we want to disciple somebody outside of our context. Yeah, I agree, man. I, uh, I, I think we need to do better. Uh, as believers, as uh, trainers and equippers and uh, missionary agencies and pastors and uh, seminary professors, we need to just have a, and that's not only limited to just, just, just uh, I, I'm talking to the audience right now, the listeners, um, it's not uh, only limited to the diaspora or the Muslim communities, it's also uh, applicable to the younger generation because they are also dealing with this and they see mm -hmm. uh, that the older generation or the old style of like being behind the pulpit and telling people what to do versus like, hey, let's sit down, pull the chair next to each other, let's talk. Therefore, the uh, small groups or, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, house churches are working because that's what, what, what is acceptable to younger generation or current mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know generation because they don't want other people telling them what to do they want to be yeah. part of the uh, you know community they, they want to be part of that discussion they want to yeah. figure it out together right so it's, yeah. it's, it's it's important i think it's good for us as a church uh, uh, um, in the united states for our own mm -hmm. uh, stability too so Tell us uh, what you found to be the biggest hurdle for Muslim for a Muslim to become a Christian. Um, it would be hard to to narrow it down to just one, but I, I would think if if I have to pick one, the biggest one would be that American churches largely want to be the host, not the guest. Mm. Um, and the desire of most churches to be multicultural, to be multi-ethnic is the desire of a, of a homogenous group of people wanting to assimilate others into them, not go be a guest and figure out in the context of a community, how do I become a part of this community? And I think that's a big one because when we do that, to your point from just a second ago, our diaspora neighbors don't get to be coworkers in developing the culture of faith that they're formed in. They're expected to be passive recipients of it. And, and that opens mm. us up to all kinds of both unnecessary, but also frankly, dangerous power mm. dynamics mm -hmm. that, that I think actually undermine the gospel. Yeah. That it is not necessary to make our Muslim neighbors more like us in order to make them more like Jesus. <laughs> right. And, that's, that's, and, yeah. Go on. Yeah, I think that, I think the single biggest obstacle is the way in which we often disciple people from another religious background as much to be good Americans as to be good disciples. Right. And I think that's where it comes down to. I, I never um, thought, or at least I, I don't preach any, and not anymore uh, or teach anymore that our job is to convert people. I, I don't think that's our job. Um, I really believe that's the job of the Holy Spirit. Our job mm -hmm. is to be light. That's what the Bible says. Uh, make disciples. Go. Uh, preach the gospel, right? 
and uh, sh- uh, what the lord said was very uh, you know very yeah uh, clear that we got to teach them all the commands that jesus has given but whether yeah, they want to follow the commands or not whether uh, they should come to christ or not it is a the- theological concept but i think it's the right one um it might be because uh, i am uh, a baptist preacher i really sure. think that is the work of the holy spirit he brings people to the saving knowledge of jesus christ a person could live and and i know muslim friends who really love the lord they love jesus actually they respect jesus more than many christians that i have come in contact with they respect Absolutely. him they love yeah. him but they simply they are unable to connect the dots uh, between the lordship and savior him being savior versus uh, um following uh, um their faith that that because it comes back to community it goes back to all of that what they grew up with you know and they have grown up with uh so yeah. i agree with you man so what's the main takeaway you want to leave listeners with um i think the main takeaway you know one of one of the maxims that I use with our house church leaders over and over and over again. I say what you believe about God determines what it means to be godly, right? So if if I believe that God can't stand to be in the presence of sin, then godly people are probably going to have a really hard time developing relationships with sinners. Or uh and and I think it applies in this instance because you know one of the primary claims we make about God as Christians is that God in Jesus took on flesh and came to dwell among us. And so if we're going to be on mission with God, I think we should try to be on mission like God. And that means figuring out what it means for the gospel to take on flesh and dwell where it is we're working. Pause, 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 pause. Go mm-hmm. back, please. Yes, sir. You said, "No, I like that." So I want the people to hear this very clearly unless I heard uh incorrectly you said if you want to do the mission of god go back and say I, that if we if we want to be on mission with god mm-hmm. which i think we are you know we're we're co-workers in this ministry of reconciliation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if we're going to be on mission with god we should try to be on mission like god yeah and the way that god has chosen to be on mission is to take on flesh and dwell among us yes. jesus learned language jesus learned culture jesus is primarily a guest almost every evangelistic story we have of him and the disciples mm-hmm. they're in somebody else's home they're not trying to strong arm them into coming into their house and i think it's important for us as as we continue to work in a in a context that increasingly is globalized and full of diaspora neighbors we need to think through the ways that the the churches that formed us may have been healthy they may have been faithful It, you know ideally they were but that isn't the only way for the gospel to take on flesh and if we don't change things out of a desire to be overly faithful to the traditions we come out of mm-hmm. we actually rob our neighbors of the opportunity to go through the same experience we did which is to be able to incarnate the the faith of Jesus Christ in ways that culturally make sense and are appropriate to them yeah So so to to sum it up the main takeaway is I I think we need to think through what it means to be like Jesus in an incarnational way as we do ministry cross culturally. Yeah. So I I know that you already did that for us in the uh, last week's episode but I think uh, it would be good to just for the new uh, listeners 
mm-hmm. if people wants to get in touch with you, mm-hmm. uh, what are the easiest ways? Yeah, I can do that. Would it be okay if I also uh, add a plug-in for something? Sure, go ahead, man. Yeah. So the, the easiest way to get in touch with us would be our website. Our ministry is called Exponent Group. Our website is exponentgroup.org. Uh, but we also have a couple of written resources for people that may just want to learn more. Uh, there's two different books I've authored. One is called Mosaic. It's a ministry handbook for globalizing world. So basically kind of our, our first two years of learning cross-cultural ministry. The other one is called Lost Faith, which is basically a, a theology of how do lost people come to faith? Um, what, what are those types of theological questions and, and gospel stories that help form the faith of, of lost people? So I think either one of those would be a great way to learn more about our ministry, or you could visit us on our website at exponentgroup.org. Do you have also your personal website? Uh, I don't have a personal website. Uh, people can find me on Twitter, but I'm, I'm not terribly interesting on there, <laughs> but, but I am there. <laughs> so if people want to get in touch with you directly, so they have to just go mm-hmm. to the website, right? Yeah, ex- exponentgroup.org. And you can get my email from there or you could contact our organization and we'll reach out to you from there. From any That's awesome. Point. And we'll make sure that we put all of this information in the episode's descriptions. So last week you told me a joke. <laughs> I'm still trying to understand the joke. That's, so that's fine. Do you have another joke? For us, I don't know if I I don't know if I have another joke, but I I do have something that may be relevant. Okay, uh, though probably more relevant to people that listen to both episodes, because you said something in our last episode that I, I think is really true, and I want to highlight mm-hmm. uh, as kind of a an litmus test that can be helpful mm-hmm. for what we're talking about. Uh, a lot of humor relies on shared assumptions and shared experience, um, whether that be wordplay or you need to understand the social dynamics of the characters in the joke to make sense. Humor is very culturally contextualized, which is why stand-up doesn't cross cultures well. Um, you know, it's it's pretty hard to watch a, a stand-up that's not speaking in English on Netflix and even understand most of the jokes, even if they literally make sense. Uh, and for that reason, I remember I was doing an ethnography training years ago for a group of new missionaries all doing Muslim evangelism. And they said, you know, this, what, what would you describe the job as an evangelist as being like, it's not like any other career. And I said, that's not true. Actually, it's, it's actually really similar to stand-up comedy yeah. because stand-ups, they get on stage night after night after night because they don't, their material is not finished. They are telling jokes in order to figure out how to make that joke work. Huh. And when a stand-up is ready to record a special, they have to go on tour because what works in New York and LA doesn't necessarily work in the rest of the country. So they go to multiple cities and do the same material to see how people hear it, to see how it's understood. That's very similar to evangelism, that the only way you get good at this is to continue to, you know, night after night, get up and do this material live and see how it lands and listen to the feedback and then improve it again. But what that means is emotionally, like comedy, you have to get used to bombing. You have to get used to saying stuff that doesn't get a reception uh-huh. because that's the only way you get better at this. Yeah. Uh, and comedians who can't handle bombing don't make it because even the best, com- you know, Dave Chappelle, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, they'll tell you, you never get to the point in your career where you don't bomb. You just get used to it and learn how to incorporate it and get faster at improving the, the material. Yeah. That's, that's awesome, man. This is really good uh, insight. Um, so knock, knock. <laughs> Who's there? Orange. Orange who? 
orange juice. You see, I didn't. This is the I did joke. Not understand that joke. I know. I never <laughs> did either. That's the first joke my wife told me some um, almost 16, 17 years ago. That was her joke, and still she does. She says that joke, and she has taught that joke to my children, and I still say the same. I, I'm like, I don't know what you talk. I, I still don't, I don't get it at all. No, I know, but again, that's not a sign that it's not funny. It's a yeah. sign that you don't understand. Yeah, it. you and, sim- and similar, you and similarly. A lot of evangelists go out and say things that are true, and then say, "Oh, this person's not receptive," uh, and it's like, "No, no, they didn't understand it." Uh huh. <laughs> and with the joke, I'm telling you, this joke, some people ha- laugh every, but when they hear it, they do laugh. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. And that is the joke that it doesn't make any sense. It's it's not mm-hmm. funny. Like, what are you doing? Um, thank you so much for being on the show again. That yeah, was Seth from. Exponent group. If you appreciate this podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show and leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in next week for more honest discussions from diverse voices. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Please check back for new episodes every week.